This is Therapy Tuesday, Smashbot's mental health podcast, and I'm your host, Ruchita Chandrasekhar. I'm a behavioral health researcher and an independent psychologist who focuses a lot of her work on trauma and post-violence recovery, and we started this podcast for people who are looking to have conversations about mental health from a feminist perspective. Please remember that this podcast aims to be an educational resource and not a substitute for therapy or treatment. In today's episode, we decided to address intergenerational trauma. It's a word that you would have seen used around in articles and in different discussions and in a lot of discourse where we talk about marginalization and historic oppression. But simply put, intergenerational trauma is traumatic experiences experienced by one generation that continues to affect the well-being of future generations. So in this episode, we thought it would be beneficial to not only unpack intergenerational trauma as a concept, but to also think about it from an individual level, from a relational level, from a systemic level, and to recognize and reflect on what is the intergenerational trauma we may be carrying in the present that could affect future generations, what attachment styles can look like, unpacking what previous relationships have looked like, and more importantly, what healing can look like. I've noticed that the ways in which we understand stress, generally as a bodily response, can often be from a lens of shame. You go to a doctor and they tell you, oh, this is a lifestyle concern. This is a stress-related concern. Don't take stress. Like it's your fault for having stress as a bodily response. When the reality is that if you pinch yourself, the mild pain that you experience is also a stress response because it's your body letting you know that something doesn't feel okay. When you feel jitters in your stomach or when you feel anxious, that's also a stress response. When you get a headache from having done a lot of work, that's a stress response too. Stress responses exist so your body is able to communicate with you. If we start looking at it from that lens, there's a higher chance that we will be a little more compassionate towards ourselves versus blaming ourselves for the concerns that we might have. The thing with something like intergenerational trauma is that it's so intimate and complex to unpack that there's also an inheritance of shame and guilt that comes with it. Stress can look so different for each of us. So it's really unfair to think of it as your fault. Patterns of stress, what your triggers are, how does your body communicate this to you, how does it manifest in physical and mental concerns can look very different for each person, which is why even care needs to be customized. There's an incredible flowchart that was created by this researcher called Dr. Lawrence J. Kiramayo that unpacks intergenerational trauma on multiple levels. For example, it talks about how on a nation level, there's political disempowerment, loss of identity, and genocide that can be some of the factors. However, in a community level, there can be things like loss of a whole generation of children, negatively labeling or stereotyping of a community, community disorganizations, conflict, social problems can be factors that create risk for intergenerational trauma. On a family level, loss of children, grief, anger, helplessness, family dysfunction, domestic violence, abuse on an individual level, as well as things like foster separation, denigration of identity, suppression of culture, physical and sexual abuse, difficult parenting, low self-esteem, 
And there are various factors that can be responsible for how intergenerational trauma manifests. So if you belong to one of these contexts, whether there is risk for previous generations having undergone some of these stressors or not, it's possible that you are victimized by intergenerational trauma. So traumatic stress can look different for everyone, but it often comes up to the surface when our bodies feel threatened by a situation that we're in. So if you leave a four-year-old in the dark versus if you leave a 24-year-old in the dark, for the four-year-old, this can become a traumatic memory versus the 24-year-old could have more of the coping skills and resilience factors to take care of them in that situation. But like I said, traumatic stress often manifests when our body feels threatened in a specific circumstance. So in a situation with intergenerational trauma, then the understanding of safety that gets passed on to future generations can also be a cycle of oppression. So in thinking about how women who have constantly felt threatened to walk on the road or in specific clothing and have undergone years of marginalization and oppression and faced physical and sexual abuse and consistently felt under threat, the ways in which they teach safety to future generations like their daughters, their sisters, their nieces can look very different and often be an oppressive language whether they realize it or not, which now goes on to traumatize a present generation. It sexualizes young girls really fast. It creates a culture of shame and guilt where women feel like it's their fault for wearing what they do and for whatever happens after that. Now, this also goes on to create conflict between two generations and in authoritarian cultures where power dynamics are so different, like in South Asian cultures, resisting becomes difficult which goes on to pose more of a risk for traumatic stress within that dynamic because of how we understand respect. There's a denial of difficulties that we see or a comparison of pain that we see between generations. Someone from an older generation telling someone from a younger generation that they've had it so easy, that they didn't have to walk to school, that they've not had difficulties with electricity, that their parents treat them differently in comparison to what the older generation's parents treated them. And this comparison of pain creates an environment that lacks empathy. And the absence of empathy in this situation emphasizes on how you have it easy and that continues, which leads to an invalidation of life experiences. What we don't know or what we don't think about in these situations, very understandably, is that one of the reasons this happens is because it's challenging for older generations and for parents who've experienced trauma to operate from a place of uncertainty. Now, this is a consequence of the pain that they carry. And they need to reassure themselves that the future generations, that their children are all right and that they have it better than they did. And this is for the sake of the parents, so the older generation's healing. This is their incapacity to tolerate uncertainty that leads to further traumatization and this loneliness and this exile that future generations, the child in this situation, has to go through. And we also often see this in communities that have undergone prolonged oppression because they tend to operate from a place of survival. And this reminds me of black families and black communities where parents will often say that the conversations that they have with their children is about how they can keep themselves safe from the police, how they look different, how race is always present in the room and how they need to present themselves or conduct themselves in order to keep themselves safe because an understanding of quality of life that is possible for marginalized communities looks very different 
in the Indian context, almost 85% of the Indian population does not belong to upper caste communities and have been subjected to centuries of violence and oppression. Staying alive becomes a challenge because of systemic difficulties. But the consequence of all of this is also what the present and future generations then internalize about their identities. What they carry forward becomes their traumatic experience within these bodies and how that plays into different relationships that they have, not only with their family and friends, but also with the state, the systems they are part of, workplaces, and even with themselves. And one of the more dominant concerns that we're seeing with intergenerational trauma now is in attachment styles. Now, attachment styles can influence how we relate to the world, how we relate to the people around us. And attachment styles are influenced by factors like safety, intimacy, security, and even distress. And attachment styles are dynamic. The kind of attachment styles that we may have had as children can look very different from what we develop as adults. But the environments and the kind of relationships that we've had dominate that. So, for example, a person with a secure attachment style would approach and cope with stressful, threatening situations without distorting them too much or mustering to defensive strategies. And if they had to ask for help, they would feel safe asking for help. Someone with an avoidant attachment style would tend to deny the need for attachment or run away from emotional situations or try to even not seek out close relationships. Even these strategies that folks put in place tend to exist because they're trying to protect themselves. They come from a place of survival. Someone with an anxious attachment style might try to hold on to the proximity and support and love very tightly, but also doubt the longevity of the support and respond very emotionally or angrily in some situations. So think about ancestral environments, gender dynamics, prolonged oppression and other lived experiences across cross-generational experiences that can affect attachment styles. For example, fathers who are conditioned to be providers can have repressed anxiety about what it takes to provide, the kind of pressures they may be under, and they might have difficulty displaying and communicating emotions, also due to the socialization that masculinity puts them through. And they might become parents who display avoidant attachment styles. Now, a child who is being raised by a parent who is displaying an avoidant attachment style internalizes very different things about connection, about intimacy, and can go on to develop anxious attachment styles. Or mothers who are conditioned to be very sacrificial, very nurturing, and often display avoidance towards their well-being, towards themselves. They have a tendency of passing those behaviors on to future generations of women that they raise. And these things are deeply cultural in communities of color and in collectivistic societies. And also thinking about the amount of pain that families and communities have endured and carried for generations through lived experiences that are dominated by things like colonization, partition, the pain of separation and loss, what we've internalized about grief and what it's done to them, and what they've gone on to teach future generations about grief and loss. Another anecdote that I'm reminded of, of someone I know, which I thought was a very clear display of intergenerational trauma that gets carried forward even if you don't have a very distinct recollection of the episodic traumatic memory was that this person at a very young age, at the age of five, lived in a state that was riddled by violence and genocide. One night, their parents realized that they had to pack their bags overnight and flee the state to another state where they could feel safer. So loss of home, 
loss of friends, loss of community, loss of land, loss of all of these things, overnight just uprooted. All they remember is that this decision had to be made and they had to uproot themselves as a family to go and seek safety somewhere else. And they have some memories of orienting to a new place because this family had to start from scratch. Now, this person's in their mid-30s now. And what they recognized as a pattern was every time they wanted to invest their money somewhere, they tried to look for houses. They wouldn't think of other investment opportunities first at all. The first thing they would try to look for is to save for a house because that was the most secure investment that they felt like they could trust. They would try to take a loan. They would try to accumulate resources necessary. They would set their financial goals in ways in which they could afford a house somewhere, like somewhere where they wanted it. And it became a running joke amongst their friends and families that, oh my God, all you keep looking for is these houses to buy. And it's not like they were collecting these houses because that's still a matter of massive privilege. And it's a really expensive investment to make. But that's the one thing that gave them security. And eventually, unpacking some of this stuff as an adult helped them recognize that being uprooted from a home at a very young age, witnessing what their parents went through, and the insecurities that entailed through that whole experience is something that they carried even to their adulthood. And they felt consistently anxious about not having a safe home. They felt like even if the worst could happen, even if the absolute worst happened, they'd still have a home. And that now they were in control of ensuring that for themselves. Now, this wasn't based in rationale given their present circumstances and their present experiences at all. But they recognized that what they were actually looking for was security because they barely saw their parents experience the security of having a safe home where they would not be uprooted overnight because there was a risk to their lives. So what does healing look like? Because these are deep experiences of pain that we carry, some experiences that are even difficult for us to understand or validate for ourselves. But one of the first steps to healing can be allowing ourselves permission to feel whatever it is that we're feeling without operating from a place of shame and guilt. And I'm not saying that that's easy. These are very difficult things to unlearn. But gradually building that muscle where we're able to allow ourselves permission to feel whatever it is, even if it doesn't come from a place of rationale, can relieve some of that burden. It can increase the acceptance of uncertainty. It can help us unlearn conditioning and even contextualize some of these experiences. It can increase the scope for validation. It can encourage us to externalize within communities where we feel safe and help us feel like we have a little more control where we understand these deep experiences. And that can be a really powerful feeling. And we all have internalized tendencies. We're all carrying some amount of pain and unlearning that, like I said, is difficult work. But it's also difficult work that can eventually feel liberating. So we need to talk a little more about history. We need to read a little more. We need to understand a little more. We need to know that there is so much more to these experiences that doesn't come from a binary of good and bad and punishment and what's right and what's wrong. Because only then can we hold ourselves a little more accountable, forgive ourselves and forgive those around us and establish our own standards for relationships, for boundaries, for existing relationships, for future relationships, which can go on to assisting in breaking the cycle of cross-generational trauma. This is all we have in this episode for you today about intergenerational trauma. 
This is your host, Ruchita, signing off. If you have any feedback, please let us know. Thank you. Thank you.